The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. I'm going to review just quickly uh, what we studied on Sunday. Uh, So uh, in Jude, we were connecting the subject, our topic of the deity of Christ, to what David had taught and to what Frank has, has been teaching and is still finishing up. On the life of Christ and the ungodly person. Sunday morning we talked about how it connected to Jude. Tonight I plan on talking about how it connects to what Frank has been teaching. But in Jude, ungodly persons were doing two things. What were they? Infiltrating the church. Yep, and doing what? What do those ungodly people do? They turned grace into licentiousness and denied denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about the former of those turning grace into licentiousness that we said hey that could reasonably happen I and mean, we could see people who had received a promise of eternal joy and life and and followed immediately after receiving that with faith uh, trials and tribulations and difficulties uh, and the promise uh, was, was kind of a far way off and so some folks might uh, reasonably start breaking boundaries start transgressing laws that God had put in place to try to um, obtain that pleasure early you could say and we talked about the analogy of Israel how that was an example where you know they're in a rough life servitude slavery they're delivered miraculously from that they're baptized Paul says through the Red Sea but the promised land is not the immediate destination but rather desert lack of water, lack of food, enemies, and very many, in fact, of that early generation, only two uh, made it all the way to the promised land. Most did not. So it's an analogy that helps as you think about folks that have come to faith and, um, you know, there's that period of time before glory where it's a test and it's a, a difficult time often. And so folks were in the church not making it. They were uh, having their pleasure early, as it were, and unlicitly, illicitly. For the latter, for denying our Master and Lord Jesus Christ, we said a couple things at a really high level. We said whatever it was, denying Christ is very serious. A lot of verses about if you deny Christ, you're, you lose the Father, uh, you incur God's wrath. It's uh, very serious. We said unlike licentious behavior, lewd or sensual behavior, it wasn't as much about uh, actions as this was about teaching. And uh, it wasn't even as much like Peter's denial per se, it was more about false teachers coming in and denying them. And we looked at different verses in Jude and 2 Peter that showed, hey, it's around teaching. And it was specifically teaching that rejected Christ's authority. And that made sense uh, because again, if you're gonna act lewdly and sensually and licentiously, then you, you wanna stay in the church You've got to justify it. You've got to give an explanation. A bad one, obviously, but you've got to give one. And their explanation was one, you'll recall, that lowered Christ, that diminished him, rejected his authority, in the same way that maybe a non-believer would use evolution to say, there's a concept of God that's not real. There's no real God. We're all here by random chance or by, and so there's no right or wrong, per se. What I'm doing isn't right or wrong. That would never fly in the church but there might be a way that they would lower or reduce the glory of Christ uh, to make way for their sin. And we talked about there were three hints. Uh, I won't go into each of those that helped us to see that. Um, But one, I'll call out, you remember it was done by dreaming, right? It wasn't following what was written. They were making it up. Um, 
And then we talked about how all this happened in history. Did people actually turn grace into licentiousness? Did that happen? And we looked at 1 Corinthians 5. So even before the New Testament was finished, being written, we had examples in Corinth of sensuality, lewdness, such that Paul said wasn't even present outside the church. And then we read from Clement of Alexandria and Irenaeus about um, the licentious Gnostics, the people who used their so-called knowledge to justify their debauchery. And then we said, what about denying Jesus? Did that, you know, Second Peter, David would always say, hey, they're coming, Jude, they're here. What happened? And we looked in history at three different groups. Remember, we looked at the Marcionites, who were the worst of the three. Not really relevant to us today. We looked at the Adoptionists, who you'll find pockets of people who still believe that today. But again, not immensely relevant. And then we looked at the Arians, who are very relevant today, groups that's their that's their doctrine today and they unlike the marcionites who completely severed the relationship between god and jesus and said there was no relationship between the god of the scriptures and jesus or unlike the adoptionists who said that relationship started at baptism when god put his spirit on jesus but otherwise he was just a man born of joseph and mary the arians said no jesus is amazingly glorious he was pre-existent He's just not completely divine. He did have a beginning. He was the very first beginning, and he's the greatest creation of all creation, and he created everything else. But he is a creature, and that's the Arian uh, heresy. So that's what we covered on Sunday, and we talked about how there are four verses, uh, Colossians, Revelation, Proverbs, and John, that were key verses that are often used by Arians or folks that do believe Jesus is a creation or that he's not fully divine, that he's not sharing in the nature of God, the Father, fully fully God. You know, they'll say he's God like Satan is God. Not in the same way. They Again, they honor Jesus. They don't honor Satan. But they say he's God in the same way Satan could be called the God of this world. Jesus is a God for sure. But he's not God by nature sharing in that full deity. And we're going to cover those verses in the four weeks to come. But tonight, I wanted to connect it to the life of Christ and what Frank has been teaching. I think this is really easy, right? Uh, I mean, you look at the life of Christ and you see Jesus raising people from the dead. You see him multiplying food to a crowd. You see him healing lepers. You see him suspending the natural properties of water so that he doesn't sink when he walks on it. And you hear people all the time point to those and say, look, it's obvious Jesus is, is God. Who else could do those things? He's, he's fully divine. But I would like to, I'm not, it's not going to be a long talk because it is easy, but it's not as easy as I just made it out to, to be. Because I want to give three reasons why I don't think that's the right way to explain it. One, every one of the miracles I just mentioned, I picked those four on purpose. Every one of those four miracles was done by Elisha. He did the exact same miracles. He raised the Shunammite woman's son. He multiplied food to feed a crowd, not as big as Jesus's, but still he multiplied food to feed a crowd. He healed a leper. Do you remember who the leper was? Naaman. Remember Naaman? He healed the leper Naaman and he too suspended the principles of water. Not to walk on it, but for iron. Yeah, and I guess depending on how heavy you are, one's a greater miracle than the other. That's one reason. Uh, and, and even just using that example, Peter, uh, was walking on the water for a time at least a second is i do want you to turn to luke 5 and uh i'll give you a second to turn there in the scriptures luke 5 
is the first part of it is where he catches he you know Simon sets out and catches an amazing amount of fish and Peter can't believe it he's you know recognizes Jesus is amazing he falls down at his feet but it's the next uh, story actually after after he heals a leper starting verse 12 it's the next story in 17 where I just want us to look at one verse there but you remember this story. Everybody knows it probably pretty well. Jesus is in a home. There's a crowd. There's no room. And his, uh, you know, paralytic's friends uh, that want to bring him to Jesus, and there's no room. They're persistent enough to go find a way through the roof to lower him down so that he can be healed. And there's a phrase at the very beginning of that in verse 17 of Luke 5 that I think is a second reason why we have to be cautious not to just look at Jesus' miracles and say, look, it's clear he's fully God. Look at what he can do. In addition to the fact that other men, I didn't even mention the apostles, who also performed, you know, great works of amazing miracles and didn't accept worship uh, because they clearly were not God. Verse 17 says, it happened that one day when Jesus was teaching, there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to perform healing. And it's that last phrase I just want us to think about for a second and think about what that means that Luke would record that, that the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to perform healing. What does that mean? Why did he write that? Uh, I would think, although it's not explicit, that it does mean that sometimes the power of the Lord wasn't there, right? Otherwise, why do you write it? Why do you write that the power of the Lord was present there? And I'm certainly reading more into than is explicit. But the reality is that it seems that if you're going to call that out, that, you know, the contrary is true, that there were times when the power of the Lord was not present for him to perform healings. Or to use an easier example, because it doesn't tug on us and make us wonder if we're demeaning Jesus. You think about the apostles, right? I mean, they're performing amazing miracles. Peter's shadow is casting or falling on people and they're being healed. But then later in Paul in 2 Timothy, when he's writing Timothy, Paul says, hey, take a little wine for your stomach because I know you're sick. You know, I mean, there came a time where it seemed that the power the apostles were experiencing was also diminishing in a sense. So what does that mean? One, I think it means there were times when the power wasn't present. And second, I think it shows that Jesus's miracles were done similarly to Elisha's or to the apostles in the sense that there was a power at work in him that wasn't necessarily his own. Like, let me let me come back to that in just a second and explain what I mean by that. But think about Elisha first again. It's easier. It's the spirit in him, right? He got a double portion of the spirit that allowed him to do beyond even what his forerunner Elijah had done. Certainly, the spirit comes down at Pentecost on the apostles and allows them to do amazing miracles, right? Well, I'm arguing that in the same way, when Jesus, you know, the Spirit comes down, and, and I'm not trying to argue adoption, I'll explain why it's not in just a second. I'm not arguing that he became the Son of God then, but I do think that the Spirit is the one that empowered him to do these miracles, the power of the Lord. And even in Luke 8:46, if you turn just a few pages, Luke is three times in his gospel, he uses this kind of terminology. When Jesus is healing, uh, and Mark, I think, or Matthew 1 uses the same terminology. When he heals the lady that has the flow of blood and he doesn't know who touched him, he says, you know, someone touched me, verse 46 of chapter 8. Someone touched me because I, I knew that power had gone out of me. 
And similarly, if you're taking notes, 619 says something very similar. So that's the second reason. I think that Jesus performed his miracles, not necessarily because he was, he is, and I'm gonna, again, don't throw rocks at me yet. He's not because he is, is the son of God and, and has that omnipotent power as part of being fully divine, but he did it through this power that was granted to him by the spirit. And sometimes, at times, that power was not present for him to do miracles. So first reason, others did these miracles. Elisha, an example. Second reason, he did them not by necessarily innate power, but through the power of the Spirit. Third reason, there are records. We all know them, right? And Arians will be quick to count, you know, speak to us about these. Adoptionists and Marcionites would as well. They just aren't around us. There are records of Jesus not being able to do things, right? He, in John 4, when he meets the woman at the well, why is he sitting at the well? He's thirsty and tired, right? He's tired. He grew weary. Mark 13, 32, he, he didn't know things. He doesn't know when the the second coming is. That's something only the Father knows. Luke 2, 52, Jesus increased in wisdom. What does that mean? He didn't have enough. He didn't have enough, right? I mean, there was he, he, he needed to grow in his wisdom. Or Hebrews 5, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. So for those three reasons, it doesn't seem to me that we should look at the miracles of Jesus in the life of Christ and say, hey, that proves Jesus is fully divine. And I don't fault pastors who do that. I think I understand the sentiment behind it, and I do think Jesus is fully divine. I'm going to explain that in a second. And I think he's fully divine as he's walking the earth. Um, but I don't think that's the best way to explain it. So we should say he was divine, uh, even though we don't point to those miracles and say that's proof of it. But should we then say because he was tired, because he did, miracles through the spirit the power of the spirit because others did similarly did he when he became a man set aside his deity is that the best way to explain it and some people think so we're not studying these folks right now but there's uh, something called the kenosis theory kenosis is the greek word for emptying and there's a passage you guys are all familiar of familiar with and i'd ask you to turn there now philippians 2 uh, there's a passage where Paul is really, more than anything, trying to explain how the Philippians can get along with each other and be humble and uh, not seek their own things more than others uh, and find ways to get along, not have selfish ambition. And he's using Jesus as the ultimate example of that because Jesus humbled himself and, and they should do the same. But as part of that, it says in verse 6 of chapter 2 that Jesus did not... Even though he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And this kenosis theory says Jesus' divine nature was gone. It was emptied, and he became a man. Uh, that word empty, I'm going to just read you some references. It's four other times in the New Testament. Twice it's translated, at least in the New American Standard, made void. Paul says in Romans 4, if, we, if, if works is what causes us to be righteous, then our faith is made void or Paul's preaching in a way that the cross of Christ not be made void. Uh, two times it's translated as empty. 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul's boasting about not taking money. He doesn't want to make his boast an empty one. Or 2 Corinthians 9, when he's boasting about, I forget which church it was. Oh, it was the Corinthian, Corinthian church. He's boasting about the Corinthian church, uh, you know, and they're preparing to give, and he doesn't want that boast to be an empty one for them to come and find they haven't set aside money to give. He doesn't want that boast to be made empty. So it's, if that's what the term means, 
Uh, is Christ's deity being made void or being made empty when he becomes a man? And again, folks say, yes, that's what's happening. But I, I don't agree. You have to allow authors to define how they use terms, right? And I think about, I read this example online. I just Googled an example of meaning and context. They said, hey, I was playing with John and he got wild and threw the book from the shelf at me, right? What's the book in that case? Right? It's a book, right? He threw the book at me. He actually heaved this uh, collection of pages. Or he went to court and the judge threw the book at him, right? And we've got to allow for differences based on context, especially when an author is willing to define what he or she means, right? And listen to Philippians 2. He emptied himself and then he continues and tells exactly what he means by it. Whereas I think naturally we would say if an author said, he was fully divine, and then he emptied himself and became a man. I do think the natural sense of that, to me, is that he got rid of his divine nature and he took on the human nature. That would be, I think, very natural. But Paul doesn't allow us to do that because he defines what he means by emptying himself. Namely, by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. So that's what he means by emptying himself when he talks about Jesus becoming a man. He talks about having a way of thinking, verse 5. It's a way of thinking. It's a uh, humility of mind, verse 3. This is the point of Paul. It's a way of thinking, a humility of mind that would allow you to take on a form that's not your natural form. It would allow you to be made in a likeness that isn't who you really are. Right? It's not that you're getting rid of it. It's that you're not going to be recognized or honored in that and Jesus said while he was here, I can call down a bunch of angels. I can do all kinds of things, but he did not allow himself to do that. He walked as a man. He grew as a man. He suffered as a man. He learned as a man, all while being fully divine. I almost feel like that's almost the greater miracle than even not sinning, uh, is not laying hold of the power that would be innately natural. And if there's any question of whether that's right, Paul makes it abundantly clear about what he thinks of Jesus in the flesh in Colossians 1 and 2. I'll just read them, Colossians 1, 19. For in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's mildly clear, but 2, 9. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So there's no question that when Jesus took on a body, it was all the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. It wasn't removing that despite the fact that he did miracles by the power of the Spirit, that he did miracles that other men did, that he at times couldn't do things and grew tired and, and maybe the power of the Lord wasn't present to heal. So his nature didn't change, but in humility he took the form or likeness of a man. And even in Luke 5, I think there's that one passage, it's very clear, or at least helps me to see that that, I think, is the right way to understand Jesus is coming to earth. Even in that passage where the power of the Lord was present to heal, later on in that passage, what does he do that is only a prerogative of God that has nothing to do with being strong enough for power? What is, the only, what is it that only God does? He forgives sin. Yeah, and that's not a question of is the power, you know, that's just something that you either have the right to do it or you don't. And he says, I have the right to do that. I have the right to forgive sin. So to me, even in Luke 5, where it's clear that he does the miracle by the power of the, the Spirit, 
even there, it's clear that he's still divine because he's willing to say, I can forgive sins. That's not power, that's an issue of position. So Jesus was fully divine and fully human, as hard as that is to grasp, but it's something we all grasp all the time in other doctrines, right? This word of God is written by God, by man, and those two things don't contradict. And God saves and chooses those he will, but we believe. And there's all kinds of those things that are very hard for us to work out, but are nonetheless true. He gave up, as Frank has said it before, the independent exercise of his divine powers. Now, in conclusion, I just say we can appreciate the disciples' confusion, right? I mean, uh, Frank has said, and again, I'm just trying to tie it to what we've been learning. Frank has said, I, I think when they heard Son of God, you know, at first they thought everything they knew about the Old Testament, they thought about David and Solomon. And, you know, they're watching Jesus and they're, they're going from peak to peak, like, or peak to valley and back. You know, can anything good come out of Galilee? Like, really? Who's this guy coming out of Galilee to? Man, what kind of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him too. He's dying on an awful death on the cross. He's resurrected. So you, you've got to give the disciples a little bit of grace in figuring things out. And you'll remember in John that the Spirit came for many purposes, but for one purpose was to guide them into that truth and to help them understand. So I would encourage us as we think about holding to the the doctrine of Christ's deity, which I hold to. Uh, he became a man. He's always been divine, fully divine, never created, as we'll talk in the weeks to come. But as we do that, I would encourage us, as we look at him in the Gospels, in the life of Christ, not to necessarily say, hey, look, he's fully divine because he just walked on water. Uh, or not to say, look, he's fully human because he gets tired. Uh, but to see it as a, a humbling, a willing to take on a form uh, that's more different than his actual full nature and to take on the nature of a man in that way. And then we will, in the weeks to come, study those four scriptures, Colossians, Revelations, Proverbs, and John. But that's all for tonight. Uh, so I'm going to transition to the prayer time.